Well, good morning, folks. It's very good to be with you again. Thank you. I can tell you now that over the next three Sunday evenings, the theme is going to be, unless the Lord directs me otherwise, uh, the theme is going to be the Holy Spirit. And this morning I really had thought to have something from the Lord as a kind of introduction to that. Well, it is in one sense what we're going to do this morning, a kind of introduction to these three Sunday evenings. And by the way, if you have any questions about the Holy Spirit, if there's any aspect of the teaching in the Bible about the Holy Spirit that you find a bit puzzling, then just jot it down on a piece of paper and give it to me next Sunday evening saying we can answer it somewhere along the line the following two Sundays. Um, Wednesday of this week I'm going to be a Presbyterian for a half an hour or an hour or so. Um, about twice a year I go down to Kilmacombe where they have a coffee morning, the two parish churches come together and they have a half hour service and uh, I'm going to be taking that little service on Wednesday morning. So if you remember to pray for me, thank you for that. Um, Alright, let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, we thank you that your word is truth and your Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And we want to be men and women of truth and we want to be more and more conversant with the truth of your word and apply it more and more to our lives and live in the good of it. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit will help us now, both speaker and listeners, to receive from you what you want to impart to us right here this morning. In Jesus' name. What we're going to be looking at this morning is a particular aspect of Christian doctrine which is kind of overlooked in many church circles. You see, we know that the Lord Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We know that he was raised again from the dead. And I think some Christians are so taken up, rightly so, with these two great facts that they don't somehow think beyond them or discover beyond them what Jesus is doing. And so this morning we're going to be looking at, if you like, the link between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of his Spirit at Pentecost. So having been with you last Sunday morning in the last chapter of John's Gospel, we turn the page and we go this morning to the, the first chapter in the book of Acts. Let's read from the beginning of the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles has quite rightly and helpfully been given a new name, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because, as you're well aware, I'm sure, all throughout this book of Acts, it's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So let's begin in Acts 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized in water, but in a few days you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know 
the times or dates the Father has said by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth after he said this he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them men of Galilee they said why do you stand here looking into the sky the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven now both Mark and Luke speak about the ascension of our Lord Jesus the end of Mark's gospel we have these words after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God then the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it so no sooner has the Lord been raised up and called back to heaven taken up into heaven than he's reported as working with them still on earth and confirming his word by the signs that followed it and at the end of Luke's gospel we have the same emphasis where we read Jesus saying to his disciples I'm going to send you what my father has promised but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high when he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany he lifted up his hands and blessed them while he was blessing them he left them and was taken up into heaven so having spent 40 days with his disciples after he was raised from the dead meeting with them either singly or with Peter as he did and Mary Magdalene as he did or in small groups uh, last week we were looking at that wonderful passage in John 21 but now our Lord Jesus is back in heaven what for and what is he doing you see it's a danger that Christians think well the great thing he did was to die for our sins and rise again from the dead so he's alive forevermore we can know him because he's a living Lord that's great, hallelujah, full stop no, not full stop because Jesus is still active very active on our behalf first of all we can say that he returned to heaven that he might represent us in heaven he came to earth to do something for us laying down his life on the cross and rising from the dead he went back to heaven to do some other things for us now we know that in his farewell talk to his friends he gave them that wonderful assurance that we find in the beginning of John 14 do not let your hearts be troubled trust in God, trust also in me in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so I would have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you so the number one reason for his going back to heaven to prepare a place for his people on that we need not elaborate the much more significant in a way thing that he went back to heaven to do was to pray to prepare for our coming at one time in the future 
But very, very importantly, to pray for our survival. He has prepared or is preparing for our arrival in the future, but he is now praying for our survival in the present. Now the word survive can mean various things, but it means really to remain alive. Remain alive. You see, when we first come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us we're spiritually dead. Before we came to know Jesus, we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. But God makes us alive. When we come to the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again from above, as we learn from John chapter 3. Made alive by the activity of the Spirit. It's one thing to make a person alive. It's another thing to keep them alive. And sadly, we probably, all of us in this room this morning, know people who at one point in the past were very much alive spiritually, loved to worship God, loved to pray together, loved to talk about Jesus, loved to feed upon the Word of God, but now it appears, outwardly at least, that the light has gone out and the life has gone somehow. Spiritually, they appear to be as dead as they were before they were converted. Now, we're not going into the finer point of doctrine on that one. But the fact is, they're not living the Christian life anymore. Oh. So, part of Jesus' ministry in heaven is to pray for us that we will remain in him and close to him and walking with him and growing in our knowledge of him and so on. And if we go to the book of Hebrews, we can look at three places there which are relevant at this point. Hebrews 7 says in verse 24, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Maybe I told you before the story of the Chinese boy who was asking his dad one day, what does it mean to save to the uttermost, as the King James Version put it, or to save completely those who come to God through him? And dad said, well, let's go for a walk. And they went off into the hills for a walk. And if you've done some hill climbing, you'll know you see a high point in the hills. You say, ah, there's the final summit. We're almost there. And you up to go, up and up and up and you get to what you thought was the final summit and you say, oh, it's not the final summit at all. There's another one higher, way beyond it. You couldn't see it from down below, you see? That's all, all about hill climbing. And after climbing a few of these summits, his dad said to his son, that's what it means. He's able to save us to the top of the furthest horizon. I like that. Jesus is able to save us not just when we first come to him for salvation, but to save us until we eventually get home safely to heaven. Chapter 9 of Hebrews says that Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary, it was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us, for us in God's presence. Uh, chapter 10 of Hebrews Verse 10, by that will, the will to do the will, that Jesus came to do the will of God and fulfilling the terms of the second covenant, laying down his life for us on the cross. And the writer here says, by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So not only has our sin been taken away and removed, 
That's the negative side. Sin removed from our lives. But it's better than that. Because the positive side is the fact that we have been actually made holy. We are God's holy people. Hmm. So, we're off to a flying start. Our sins have been removed and we have been made holy. But, for maximum benefit from all that God has done for us in His Son, we have to cooperate. We have to remain in touch. And so, you see, we find ourselves again and again being reminded of the importance of another verse in Hebrews, chapter 4, one I quote very frequently when I'm preaching. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The writer has just said before that that we have a great high priest who has gone into heaven. So he's there representing us. And it's so, so important that we keep in touch with him. We're kept, says Peter, by the power of God for the further dimension of our salvation. But, he doesn't say that. He said we're kept by the power of God through faith. We have to maintain a healthy relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ if we're going to continue to live on top spiritually in this life. So number one, having ascended to his Father's presence, having sat down at his Father's side, our Lord Jesus has gone to prepare for our arrival and to pray for our survival. But secondly, he has gone back to heaven that he might rule over all for us from heaven. Wonderful songs this morning, Graham, a wonderful selection of songs. And the very first one we sang was referring to Jesus as being king over all the earth and he is Ephesians 1 is a chapter that I always find thrilling especially the end part of it where Paul tells these Christians at Ephesus in Turkey that he is praying for them and he also tells them what he is praying for them and in the course of that prayer he says there in Ephesians chapter 1 I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power that is available for us now in the 21st century. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Do you enjoy air travel? I do. Some people don't like travelling by air. I, I love it. They don't like waiting in the air, airport. That's the part I don't like. But uh, once you're up, you're up. And hopefully you stay up. But you know, that, that, that takeoff. You know what happens to me? What, what happens to you when you have the takeoff? You plug your ears or something. Well, when the plane's about to take off, I get excited. Because you see, immediately I'm back in Ephesians chapter 1. 
where Paul tells us that the power available to us, you, to me, in our lives today, is of the same order that God exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and caused him to ascend to his own right hand. Hallelujah. So this taking off is a spiritual experience to me every time I fly. <laughs> Enjoy it next time. But you see, we haven't quite finished this passage. Because Paul says, And God placed all things under the feet of Christ, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We know that the Lord Jesus is the head of the church. Paul says so. But he goes beyond it here, you see. He says that he's not only the head of the church. God has made his son Jesus Christ head over everything for the church. He's praying for us. He's ruling for us. Isn't that good news? He is ruling over all for us from heaven. He controls all things for his glory. We can go to various places in scripture to find this confirmed. We can go to Colossians chapter 1 for example and find there in verse 16 Paul saying by him, by the Lord Jesus Christ all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. We might say whether parliaments or any of these bodies that exercise power and authority on the earth all were created by him and for him to serve his purpose he is before all things and in him all things hold together the bible teaches us that if Jesus did not hold this planet together and indeed this universe together it would somehow disintegrate yes all things are held together by him we go to the magnificent opening words of Hebrews, back in Hebrews again, the opening words of that letter, that book. In the past God spoke to our forefathers in the prophets at many times in various ways. In these last days he has spoken to us in a son whom we appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining, sustaining all things by his powerful word Jesus says it and it happens sustaining all things by his powerful word after all he did say to the disciples before he left this earth all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and when we read of disasters and we read of dangerous, vicious, cruel people in positions of enormous influence and authority, it puts our hearts at rest to know, well, that may be so and it is so. But ultimate authority, ultimate authority, the overall authority, the overarching authority is in the hands of our Lord Jesus. And of course we can glimpse into the future as well when we're at it. And we can go to 1 Corinthians 15 and we can read there As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority, all power, where he must reign until he has put all his enemies 
under his feet. We sometimes are, have been over-influenced by his children's hymns that we sang in the Sunday school of the church. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And that suggests that Jesus is a bit like some human beings we know who wouldn't say boo to a goose. That's not the Jesus I know. Of course he's gentle and kind and caring. Of course he's all these things. But he is almighty God and is ruling over all things for us, for you and for me now from heaven. He's controlling all things for his glory. And also he controls or converts, converts all things for our good. Jesus doesn't only convert us, he converts our circumstances. You see, Romans 8, 28 is one of these verses that some people find it very, very hard to believe. It sounds too good to be true. But there Paul says, in all things, in everything, all things, God is at work for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Now, the fulfillment of that promise sometimes comes a lot later than we would like it to come. But the fact is, at the end of the day, our God is committed to bringing some good out of every circumstance, no matter how horrible, how disastrous. But for his people, he is committed to bringing some good out of it. That leads us on to the question of many people many cynics, many atheists and so on, who say, why does this God of yours allow so much suffering in the world? Why does he even allow Christians, very genuine Christian people, to go through very, very unpleasant experiences? Well, James shed some light on that in the very beginning of his letter. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Perseverance is a vital ingredient in a Christian life. We are not all gifted the same way temperamentally. Some don't find it too hard to persevere, Others find it incredibly difficult to stick at something in day in, day out, day in, day out, no matter how long it takes. You see, most people, many people, a majority of people become Christians when they're young. Those who do become Christians become Christians usually when they're fairly young. So we have a long world ahead of us until the end of life. And a vital key to going forward successfully in the Christian life is this whole business of perseverance just plodding at the same things, not giving up not giving up on Bible study, not giving up on prayer not giving up on worship, not giving up on fellowship, but keeping on it, that's perseverance and it pays off handsomely handsomely and of course, the classic example probably of suffering that seems perhaps to us unnecessary and unjustified is the suffering described by the Apostle Paul himself when he tells us in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 12 
to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. People have tried to figure out what this thing was that Paul describes as a thorn in the flesh. Well, I think it's better that we don't know what it was because then it can apply to anything that may happen to us that could be described as a thorn in the flesh. So Paul tells us that he did what you and I would do. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. Do we do that? This is a direct opposite of what a non-Christian normally does in the face of unpleasant circumstances. The non-Christian does not, and indeed cannot, react like this. But we who know the Lord Jesus can and must learn, if possible, to do so. To delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For, says Paul, when I am weak, when I am weak, then I'm strong. You know, I feel weak every time before I come to preach somewhere. I feel weak. I lie in bed in the morning and say, I can't do this, Lord. I, I, I'm not up to it. But when I'm weak, then I become strong with the strength of God. I much prefer his strength to mine. The ascension, Jesus ascended into heaven that he might represent us in heaven, that he might rule over all things for us from heaven, and that he might release from heaven the Holy Spirit about whom we're going to be thinking over the next three Sunday evenings. You remember that passage in John 7 where we read in the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If a man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And John explains, by this he meant the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. But now that he's back in heaven, he has been glorified. And what does he do? Well, we go to Acts chapter 1, rather Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 33, where Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he says this, he says of Jesus, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Difficult for us perhaps to understand the whys and wherefores of this, but in the way of God's doing things, the Holy Spirit could not come in power upon the church until Jesus was back in heaven, his earthly work completed. But here is a kind of strange picture of Father, Son and Holy Spirit in heaven. And it seems odd to, to us to put it this way, because we're talking about God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, exalted at the right hand of God, 
Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. It's as if the Father turned to the Son and said, Now, it's time for you now to pour the Holy Spirit upon the earth. And he did. So that, in a sense, is the third reason why Jesus needed to be back in heaven. That he might release the Spirit of God upon the earth. But one more thing. He returned to heaven that he might eventually return to earth and take us to heaven. In heaven, he prays for us. In heaven, he rules over all things for us. And one day he's coming back to collect us. Didn't he say that to the disciples? He said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. And our getting into heaven at the end of the day, whether we go through physical death and go to heaven that way, or whether we're alive until Jesus comes again and are taken without death into the Lord's presence, our getting there is through a death we did not die. To enable us to live in fellowship with God with sins forgiven, Jesus had to die that agonizing death. He died on the cross of Calvary. But that's not something we have to face. He did it for us. As Peter says, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And that doesn't mean just to bring us to God in this life so we can know God now like we know him this morning. Yes, that's the beginning. But in the fullness of that, it means going on to be with God vitally and eternally in heaven. Oh, oh, how wonderful. Through a death we didn't die. And on a day we do not know. You remember Jesus said, as Matthew tells us, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And again and again in Scripture, the promised return of our Lord Jesus Christ is emphasized uh, right through to the very end of the Bible, book of Revelation, where John writes, Look, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. He disappeared through the clouds 2,000 years ago. He will return through the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. Well, all the peoples of the earth will mourn, yes, those who have rejected him, but not the believers. Because, you see, we're ending on a very positive note here. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, wonderful, wonderful truth is spelled out for us. Paul writes to these Christians in Thessalonica and says, Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. 
You see, we must keep the distinction in mind between the death of Jesus and our death as Christians. The death of Jesus was death, with the element of death which is the ultimate thing in death, which is separation. Not only did he have an agonizing death, but in the process of dying, or before he finally yielded his spirit to God on the cross, our Lord Jesus cried in agony and in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he had never ever from eternity been out of touch with his Father. They lived in fellowship together, they worked together. But now he's been made sin, the wages of sin is death. And the Father has turned his face away, as the hymn says. And Jesus experienced the horror of being out of touch with his Father. That is death, but not for us. The Bible doesn't speak about the death of Christians as death. Our death is described as sleeping. That's why the word cemetery is used. Because the word cemetery comes from the Greek word for a sleeping place. That's what a cemetery is. Originally it was named that way because it's a place where Christians end physically their bodies buried in the ground. So, Paul continues. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. There it is. The Lord himself, this same Jesus, will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever therefore encourage comfort each other with these words God is good he's given us specific words with which to comfort one another when our loved ones who are Christians are taken from our side let's pray Father, we thank you for reminding us this morning of the many blessings which are connected with the return of our Saviour to the glory of your presence. We thank you that far from being inactive, our risen Lord is, in a sense, more active than ever, praying for us and ruling over all things for our benefit, for our protection, for our blessing. We thank you that he did pour the Holy Spirit upon the church. And we thank you that we look forward to the glorious day when that all-commanding voice will sound and the Lord who is now in the presence, your presence, Father, will be again touching down on planet Earth to gather his own together. We thank you for the prospect 
of that glorious day. Help us today and every day to live in the good of that coming day. In Jesus' name. Amen.